If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. William and Catherine, this dynamic between them, they were the angel and the cad. It really captured the public imagination and they became the first ever celebrity couple. That was Geraldine Roberts talking about her new book on a Regency scandal. A lot of what the canals are doing are not necessarily promoting industrialisation. They're also just allowing the economy to grow more broadly. And that was Emma Griffin discussing the history of canals. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of July 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. By the time that she was 16, Catherine Tilney Long was the wealthiest heiress in Regency England. She could have had her pick of any of her many suitors, 
Yet the man that she chose, William Wellesley Pole, turned out to be as feckless as he was well-connected. Their story, from romantic beginnings and celebrity status, through domestic strife and eventual separation, is the subject of Geraldine Roberts' new book, The Angel and the Cat. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Geraldine to find out more. And he started by asking her what inspired her to chart this couple's lives. Uh, Well, my motivations were twofold. Uh, Firstly, it was because the story is so irresistible. Uh, It contained so many twists and turns. But really the whole thing came about after I found Catherine's letters. So there was a box of letters in, in the local archive and I just was really gripped by them. But secondly, I feel a very strong personal connection to the story because I grew up around Wanstead and I've walked in the park and, you know, all my life and it's just as a special place in my heart. So two reasons, really. For people who might not know then, uh, what is this story and who are the characters that it involves? Well, The Angel and the Cad is a true story of a high society scandal that shocked the Regency public. It reveals the darker side of love and marriage in the time of Jane Austen. Uh, My characters, well, my main character is Catherine. She was the richest heiress in Regency Britain. She was beautiful, she was kind and accomplished and really the ideal Regency heroine. And dozens of men pursued her, including the future King William. But she turned down the opportunity to become queen and married for love rather than status which was quite unusual for the time, which demonstrated really she was a romantic woman and also very single-minded. Her husband, William, was the dashing libertine nephew of the Duke of Wellington. He was handsome and refined, but he also had this very, very dangerous wild streak. And his antics, you know, were sometimes very hilarious, but also appalling as well. And his... Sexual exploits were so legendary that satirists called him Mr. Longpole. Uh, well, I won't, I won't go into why. You can read the book. <laughs> and, you know, William and Catherine, this dynamic between them, they were the angel and the cad. It really captured the public imagination and they became the first ever celebrity couple. They got married at a time, really, when... Technology was booming and inventions such as the steam-powered press enabled a much wider circulation of newspapers. And also there was room now to comment on society gossip and scandal. And, you know, William and Catherine didn't disappoint. You know, they, they you know, were there at a time when the tabloid press and the paparazzi were just coming into being and they certainly gave everyone a lot to talk about. Mm. How old were they when they met? Catherine was about 20 and he was about 22. Mm. So they were quite young. Yes, they were quite young and exciting and dynamic and glamorous, which is what the public liked about them. Mm. And you mentioned there some of his exploits. Um, Are there any that particularly stand out for you? Well... Before she met him, when he was, you know, he was so reckless, his family sent him abroad, he was causing so much chaos in England, and they decided that if he went abroad, you know, it would be 
you know, character forming for him and they got him a diplomatic position. And while he was in that posting in Turkey, he managed to actually cause a, a minor war by um, being very undiplomatic, really, I suppose. And he basically worked across his way across Europe in over five years, just causing chaos wherever he went because he was so indiscreet. By the end of that time, he seemed to have grown up a bit and he came back to England and for a time he did seem to settle down and but then you know and Catherine obviously fell in love with him he was very charming but then you know that these earlier characteristics started to come out some years into the marriage and he went back to his old reckless ways and Catherine spent a lot of time just trying to rein him in without success really because mm. the thing is she did genuinely love him that was the thing of it I suppose wasn't it Oh, yes, she did, because she could have married someone, stayed, and she had the choice to marry the future king, but she chose to marry a man who was very exciting and gorgeous and good-looking, and, you know, I can't really blame her for that, given the choice. Well, I don't know. I certainly would have gone for the exciting choice. I don't know what other women would do, but I admire her for that. What did you make of her character um, at the start, particularly, of, of, of their relationship? Well, you know, I'd heard all the legends about her. I'd heard that she was dim and dull. And, you know, on, on the face of it, you know, the way she ended her life in ruin, it did seem that she had made some very bad choices. But when I actually started reading her letters, a very different image emerged, began to emerge of, you know, this woman who painted landscapes and composed music and was very kind to her family. And her letters, you know, are not written by a stupid woman. It, it you know, and, you know, certainly later on, she was liaising with solicitors and writing statements and, you know, putting together the pieces to, to fight this major legal battle. And those letters were definitely not written by a stupid woman. She knew what she was doing. So that's what really, you know, captured me and made me want to tell her story. Mm. So what were the uh, steps that led up to this legal battle that you just mentioned there? The steps, well, she was... Women in the Regency basically had very few rights, particularly married women. The, the moment you married all your property passed to your husband and he could do whatever he wanted. But, you know, even if you earn money, he could take your wages. He could even have the clothes of your back. He possessed everything that you owned. So she really was up against it. And fighting for women's rights, it was unheard of really at that time. You know, feminism hadn't even happened. Her husband was spending all her money her husband actually had been fairly abusive to her mentally, which she put up with. But when he started being abusive towards the children, that's when she really felt she had to take a stand. You know, the, you know, it's one thing, I mean, the urge to protect your children actually is very strong. And that's what prompted her to really challenge the law of the land and and the father's ultimate right to have custody and ultimate right to actually control everything to do with the children, including education, how they should be brought up, whether a 10-year-old should be allowed to drink wine and smoke cigars. That was all 
you know, up to the husband and this is what her husband was was encouraging her children to do. So she had to fight, she had to fight in the court to, to protect them. Mm. And how did that go? Ah, uh, well, how did that go? It was the first major victory. It was the first turning point in Chancery. It didn't go entirely her way, but it did set a precedent in British legal history that, you know, prompted change. And uh, sort of within the decade, the first pass of the first piece of feminist legislation had been passed into British law, which was, you know, the Custody Act. You know, giving women rights to custody you know, for their children. So it was an important breakthrough in Chancery that she gained. So all these bad experiences that she had um, did lead to something positive eventually, if not necessarily at the time. Exactly. And, and, and because she was a celebrity and because her whole life pe- plays out in the press, the nation watched what was happening and it sparked debate you know, amongst the public, you know, is this right? Is this, is this right? Should a woman really be treated like this? So, you know, the fact that she lived her life in the public eye really helped. Hmm. Because, because the thing is, as, as well as being kind of unfair to her and her children, he was incredibly uh, bad with money, wasn't he? Well, yes, because, you know, at the time, it was, it was the culture of the time, really. It was so easy to get credit you know, you know, physical money. Well, it was so easy to get credit because you know he could actually walk into a shop and and order, you know, going to a Savile Row shop and order an entire new wardrobe, and that would all be on credit. He might not have the money, so she was constantly bailing him out. He could go along and buy himself a thoroughbred horse, which was, you know, the equivalent of a of a Porsche. You know, and she had no control over him ordering ordering money on credit ordering goods on credit what did you make of his character well you know I, I swing between liking him believe it or not and really disliking him it's you know I, I see him very much through Catherine's eyes I suppose I've read her letters and I know how much she adored him so sometimes I find it difficult to hate him and also his mother's letters his mother loved him and adored him and some of the things that happened, you know, his mother was heartbroken about. So I find it difficult to hate him entirely. But when I think about the way he treated his children, that's what really turns me against him. And really that's what turned Catherine against him. So, yeah, I swing between I swing between finding him charming and finding him just abhorrent, really. Um, what happened to the children? Do we get a sense of how these experiences shape their later lives? Well, we do because, you know, the boys, he, he decided that the boys needed to be brought up to be very manly and be involved in manly pursuits. So rather than sending them to school, he sent them to muck out the stables and they mixed with, you know, the stable grooms and they learnt very buff, you know, very bad language, very obscene language. And they they grew up to be, you know, fairly rough rather than refined. And this followed through into their later lives because the younger son, he was he was actually a real sweetheart, actually. His letters to his sister and his aunts were very sweet, but 
he chose to become a prize fighter. He earned his living by being a prize fighter, and he, you know, quite often he travelled from town to town and lived rough, and and it really took a toll on him. And he died relatively young. And you know, the other boy, he inherited the estates. The elder son, and he really wasn't able. He was wasn't educated enough to really take on that mantle. So it did affect it did affect the boys, and also none of the children ever married. None of them produced ch- children themselves, and I think possibly seeing their parents' marriage and how acrimonious that was did scar them, which is quite sad, really. Mm, yeah, definitely. And what happened to Catherine and William? Well, she instigated um, a divorce against him, and they separated and. She never saw him again. How far into their marriage did that happen? That happened about 15 years into their marriage. Okay, yeah, excellent. What do you think um, this episode tells us about the wider society of the time? The episode, actually, I find it, you know, my book very much, much focuses on the excitement of the time. What I found very exciting about the time was the whole, you know, press and... And how the press was starting to influence the public and the whole celebrity culture thing. You know, I mean, the book was reviewed in, in the Daily Mirror recently and I just loved the review because, I mean, I'll quote from it. They said, you know, William and Catherine were the first ever celebrity couple. And I quote, no, they were rich, they were sexy, they were bigger than Brangelina. They filled the gossip columns for two decades and, oh my God, their scandals would break the internet today. And that's what I love about the book is, um, you know, this how it ties in really with modern Britain and how we see the birth of some of the things that we recognise today. That's what I love about the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any particular modern parallels that you think are striking, perhaps? Striking? Well, this whole Brangelina thing did, did strike me as they were big. You know, once did is a sleep little village and I thought wow back in 1812 Wanstead was like the Hollywood of Britain you know there was so much excitement surrounding this couple and you know you know the book is very very dark in places so I've really tried to include as much humor and as much light and shade as I can and you know really the first probably half of the book is is fairly frivolous for this reason because that's how the story played out in the press you know the press now, the first section of the book reads very much like a Regency romance, uh, you know, a Jane Austen novel, because that's how it was portrayed in the media. And there's a lot of fun and lots of satire. And, you know, will she marry this, you know, Duke of Clarence, who is 46 and very ungainly? Or will she marry this, you know, this gorgeous hunk who plays sport? And, you know, this is how the press played with the story. And that's how I've very much written the first section of the book. And then, you know, the story starts to get darker and, you know, melodrama really kicks into press reports. And that's when I try and retain, you know, all that drama excitement as well. So the tone of the book changes very much in line with how the press portray the, the couple. So, Because they were so trendsetting in this kind of celebrity way, do you think their lives shaped the press at all? I think, you know, scandal became... Scandal and gossip became a tradable commodity. You know, the newspapers realised that scandal would sell, would sell. So 
they they did start to trade cash in on William and Catherine, if you like, and they were branded and packaged to be a commodity. So yes, they did. I think. Mm. Um, if you could somehow travel back and ask one of them a question, what do you think you'd ask? You know, I think possibly the question would be to Catherine, you know, what would you have done differently? Because I do wonder if she would have, you know, maybe married Clarence. You know, she had her children. She had her children with William. You know, once once that's happened, I think it's it's difficult to, to want your life to be different. So, yeah, I, I do wonder if she would have made different choices, knowing what she knew. How how did her experiences shape her personality? Well, she started off, she was a very lively, flirtatious woman. She um, enjoyed all that, you know, when she was courting, she had lots of attention and she loved the attention. She was seen around smiling and dancing at all the best parties and beautifully dressed and very glamorous. And as she became more and more repressed by William, you know, she laughed a lot. She did say to her friends, what became of that woman that you used to laugh so much? And, you know, she was repressed. But then after a few years, when it all got too much, you know, her old character kicked back in. And, you know, she had been a trendsetter. She had been very pioneering she had been quite bold and all that returned when she had to fight in this court case. And she, you know, the feisty Catherine returned, which was really good to see. And finally, if this book could shape people's view of this period um, and of celebrity and I suppose marriage, how would you like that to do so? Well, I think, you know, we're all used to reading Regency romances where there's happily ever after, you know, Jane Austen paints, you know, a very chocolate box view of England, really. And, you know, it's lovely. And, you know, people did did lead those kind of lives. You know, people, you know... But, you know, there was also a much darker side to Regency life. There was all the poverty of the lower classes. There was repression of the masses. The lower classes lived in real squalor. And, you know, life, you know, was difficult for you know, people in high society as well. There was a lot of glamour, but there was also a lot of pressure to display your wealth and to display your status and to be the top dog and to have your, you know, to have your name in the newspapers. And that brought different pressures as well. So, yeah, that you know, life wasn't as rosy as, as people might think, even if you were rich and famous. That was Geraldine Roberts. The Angel and the Cad, Love, Loss and Scandal in Regency England is out now, published by Macmillan. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A telegram from Hitler's second-in-command in the final days of the Second World War asking the Führer to hand over the reins of power, has sold at auction for £35,600, more than twice its expected price. The telegram was sent to Hitler by Hermann Goering when he learned that the Führer was hiding in a bunker in Berlin. Goering sent Hitler a message on the 23rd of April 1945 asking to be put in charge, the Telegraph reports. According to accounts of those close to Hitler, the telegram sent the leader into a rage and contributed to the breakdown of his mental state. Hitler and his partner, Eva Braun, killed themselves on the 30th of April. The Second World War ended just days later and Goering later took his own life after being found guilty of war crimes during the Nuremberg trials. The telegram had previously been expected to sell for £15,000 at the Alexander Historical Auctions in Stamford near New York on Tuesday. Instead, an unnamed buyer in North America bought it for $54,675, the equivalent of £35,600. In other news, wonderfully bizarre and rarely seen videos, including the world's earliest known surviving home movies dating to 1902, are now available to watch for free online. The British Film Institute has released thousands of recordings from the BFI National Archive and the Regional and National Archives of the UK. The BFI's Britain on Film project gives everyone in the UK free access to footage of where they live, grew up, went to school and holidayed as a child, or any place of interest in Britain. Highlights include a man driving over Ben Nevis, families holidaying in Bognor Regis, and an old Norse Vikings festival in the Shetlands. Robin Baker, head curator at the BFI, said, For 120 years, cameras have captured almost every aspect of life in the UK on film, but too often these have been inaccessible to all but the most determined researchers. Now, Britain on Film is transforming access to films from the UK's archives and giving new life to them by making them available, no matter where you live. You can view our selection of the best videos at historyextra.com. Meanwhile, scientists have claimed that American volcanoes may have triggered the fall of the Roman Empire. According to researchers from Nottingham University and 17 other international institutions, 
American volcanoes sparked a huge dust cloud triggering catastrophic climate change, the Telegraph reports. A huge dust cloud in 536 AD and another three years later blocked out sunlight for several months, leading to widespread famine and causing the Great Justinian Plague, which wiped out one-third of Europeans and probably dealt the final blow to the struggling Roman Empire, which had already lost much of its power and influence. The research was published in the journal Nature. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekend Festivals. They're taking place in York from the 25th to 27th of September and Malmesbury and Wiltshire from the 15th to the 18th of October. Speakers include Michael Wood, Melvin Bragg, Bethany Hughes, Lloyd Grossman and Alison Weir, among many others. You can see the full lineup and get hold of tickets at historyweekend.com. Now, each month in the magazine we run a regular feature where a historian visits a historic location that illustrates a period or event in Britain's past. In this month's issue, Professor Emma Griffin paid a visit to the Canal Museum in Northamptonshire, in the company of journalist Nigel Tassel, to see how canals fed into the Industrial Revolution. Let's hear how they got on. OK, we're here on the banks of the Grand Union Canal in Stoke Bruin in Northamptonshire. I say we because I'm in the company of Emma Griffin from the University of East Anglia, a historian specialising in industrial in the Industrial Revolution. Hello, Emma. Hi. OK, first question. If there wasn't this extensive canal network in the UK or in Britain then, um, what, would the Industrial Revolution have happened? Would it have been postponed until railways came along? How crucial was it to it? I think the way to think about canals is it's pre-industrial revolution. So the railways are what the industrial revolution is really all about because they move things across the country at speed. What the canals do is they're, they're not fast, they're not rapid, but they do give you the capacity to move particularly very heavy things about. And a lot of our industry that developed were heavy industries, so coal, iron making, later steel making. It's big, heavy, bulky things that you simply couldn't move around on the road network. And so prior to that, you obviously just got horse-drawn carriages, which can't you've, carry much coal, obviously. You've got horse-drawn like carriages. Well, you've got two options. You've got horse-drawn carriages, um, which simply cannot bear very heavy weights, and particularly because we haven't really got a very well-developed road network, network, and we don't have macadam, it's all pre-tarmac. So over bumpy, muddy roads, you, you just can't pull a heavy, uh, a heavy cargo. The other option you've got are the rivers that are already there. So we are making the best, you know, prior to the canals, we're making the best of the rivers and of the coast. So we are taking things from Newcastle, coal is travelling from Newcastle down to London, for example, by the sea, and we're using the, making the best of the rivers. What the great um, innovation with the canals is it allows you to break away from your natural river networks and start cutting water channels where you want to go. So prior to that, we're using channels that are already there. They may not be awfully convenient for us, but we're just using them because they're there. The canals break away from that and give us the power to set our transport where we need it to be. Because previously you just completely at the whim of nature you're at the whim of nature exactly yeah, okay okay one of the key figures in this was the the duke of bridgewater in the construction of the canal network he was one of the pioneers um and the bridgewater canal uh, just outside manchester going into manchester bears his name um he was he owned loads of coal mines so it's crucial for him to reach that big urban population and that big market wasn't it 
That's right. And the history of transport in Britain is really all about coal. It's all driven by coal. First of all, the canals and later the railways are all about owners of coal or coal miners wanting to get their coal from where it comes out of the ground to where they can sell it or where they can use it. So the, the Duke of Bridgewater built his canal essentially to, tra- to transport what's a very heavy and a very bulky good um, from one place to another. And, and that's, the mo- that's the driver, really. Coal is the driver for the canals. And the, the construction of Bridgewater Canal is particularly quick. It's, it's only a six-mile canal, but it goes through tunnels, and we've got a tunnel just up from us mm-hmm. here, the Blisworth <coughs> Tunnel, um, and even an aqueduct. It was built in two years by his chief engineer, James Brindley, who'd never built a canal before, and who went on to, to build these ones. These are, these are fast engineering project, projects that really take a leap of the imagination to actually... I mean, imagine this is, this is 1761, yeah. the Bridgewater Canal is built. That's right. You know, well, there's a, there's a kind of a tradition of trying to make waterways work. So there's a big kind of engineering tradition with our rivers that are already there. And the canals are this, this, this kind of step change where you stop working with what you've got and you start to just build something that you need instead. But there's a big history of engineering knowledge, of, of cutting waterways, of using locks, of of navigating your way around things that need to be navigated. So they're building on all of that expertise that's already there. Um, and how was the network drawn up? Was it a case of individual <coughs> entrepreneurs, like the Duke of Bridgewater, just building his stretch for one specific purpose, and it just happened to be this all gets linked up, or was there any kind of grand centralised design at all? There's certainly no grand centralised design. This is all driven by landowners and industrialists who have their own local needs, and they provide the funding, they provide the investment, they find the engineers, they make it happen, and that's exactly, again, what's going to happen later with the railways. So it's a patchwork, and it's not always um, awfully efficient because you sometimes have canals uh, competing against each other in a small stretch. It's not always the best way of doing things but this is the way all infrastructure projects happen in the 18th and the 19th centuries. I was thinking about the competition if there is no centralised overall plan that you've got these entrepreneurs all trying to undercut each other and trying to take a shortcut and their route being a mile <laughs> quicker than others. Absolutely. So you sometimes have exactly that where you've really got kind of useless competition um, because this is just, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. If you can make a profitable canal, then there's a lot of money to be made over charging people to use that canal that's there. I was going to ask about that, whether it was that a toll gets charged on the canals or whether entrepreneurs might have their own boats to... And, you know, it's like a, like a latter-day haulage firm would be on the road. Network. Usually once the um, canal has been built, then you charge people. I mean, roads are working in exactly the same way. You build the, the, the road or the canal and then you charge people to use their vehicles along it. And so the construction was all privately funded as well? All of the construction is privately funded. Exactly. And yeah. we've got quite a, lot, quite a sophisticated banking system by the 18th century. So it's possible to raise the kind of funds that you need. What kind of funds would it need? I mean, how many men would be working? Say, say we talk about the Bridgewater Canal, and that's six miles, and it's built in two years. You're, are you talking hundreds, thousands? No, but you're certainly thinking... I don't know. But you're certainly thinking of hundreds of people. I mean, it's all done. I mean, we're, we're pre the steam engine. Everything is done by human muscles and by horse muscles. It's all, it's all done, you know, on a very small scale. So, effectively, the way these things work is by hiring navvies. That's what the navvies are all about. You, you hire fit young men who work extremely hard and intensively for quite short periods and it's quite a mobile workforce coming in and moving out all all the time so was it the equivalent of some sort of like you have a gold rush in america um it's that sort of real get rich quick scheme and and who would be the entrepreneurs who would be the investors would it be people trying to earn a quick buck or would it be the industrialists 
Well, initially, it's the industrialists who have the motivation and who, you know, it's those who see the vision for, you know, the the purpose, the value of it. So initially, it's all being driven by industrialists who have their own local needs for a canal. But then inevitably, once the movement starts to gain momentum, then people start to see that you can make a living, a very good living, out of designing and constructing and building uh, canals. So at that point, you get kind of investors who don't necessarily have a personal need for it, but who see it as a really good investment opportunity. But it's not just an absolute free-for-all with people just carving up the countryside willy-nilly. There were the racks of Parliament in place to workers' checks and balances on this. Absolutely. It's not that easy to start building a canal because you need to petition, you need to go to Parliament to get an Act of Parliament that will permit you to build your canal. So it's not easy. Um, uh, it's not something that you can enter into lightly. It's extremely expensive. And getting the permissions that you need in order to start digging canals is a kind of a timely and a costly process. All, all that land you've got to, you know... Exactly. Yes. Unless you're a, a landowner with a huge amount of land. Exactly, exactly. You're, you're going to have to get into some bargaining you, and some you tough do, talking. You need to get into a lot of bargaining, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, James Brindle, who was the chief engineer of, of uh, Lord Bridgewater, he went on to build hundreds of canals and he, he famously tried to link the Trent with the Mersey and I think he died before he actually saw it. Um, and what you were saying earlier about how use of the existing waterways and then bringing that together to create a, a network... Um, so what extent are we talk, talking about a sort of national industry at this point? Because for, for coal to have reached the south of England, that wouldn't have been possible before. Um, it probably gone from the Kent coalfields or South Wales or something. So to what extent does this create an economy where products made or, or manufactured in, in the north then can reach the south? Okay, I don't think we should imagine that things couldn't go from north to south before or from east to west because people are using the coast and they are using the rivers. What the canals do is allow you to to make those journeys much more cheaply and much more quickly. So what's really happening is transport costs are being massively reduced. Um, And it also, I mean, coal, for example, everybody in London is heating their houses and cooking their food with coal. So I I think a lot of what the canals are doing are not necessarily promoting industrialisation. They're also just allowing the economy to grow more broadly. So it's not, it's not all about... I think what often happens with transport is you think... I mean, people design it for industrial purposes and then, in fact, all sorts of people use it for non-industrial purposes. So transporting coal for cooking and for heating is one example. And people start using them to travel on. People suddenly realise they want to move. So you mm. start to have a passenger uh, kind of... Um, barge network as well so there's lots of unintended things that are coming out of the growth of the canals so you say how the canal system was was pre-industrial revolution but it still must have really accelerated the national economy it definitely accelerates the national economy prior to the existence of the canals the sheer cost of moving things from one part of the country to another adds an awful lot of of um cost to the final product that you're selling just because a lot of the costs are being absorbed by transport so what it enables you to do is move things around. it also makes things happen it makes it possible for things to happen so if you want to um if you've got a you know you if you can't move coal around and you've got an industry that needs coal you you can't really have an industry that's coal dependent unless it's right on the coal fields when you have the canals and you can move coal around you can start to develop coal industries away from where the coal is which may also be very advantageous it may be where the workers already live it may be close to a port so all sorts of other advantages it just it it promotes economic growth in, in all sorts of ways obviously the canal network was very extensive in the west midlands and and the northwest 
Um, standing before us is the, or it's not standing, flowing before us is the, uh, the Grand Union Canal. What's the significance of this? Because obviously that comes up from London um, and the clues in the name grid, the Grand Union. It's kind of uniting the networks further north with obviously a huge commercial centre that is London. Um, is it like the M1 of its day? I think that's the right way to see it. Um, it connects London. Um, I mean, London has been connected to Newcastle through the coast, but other parts of the north, and particularly over towards the northwest, very difficult really to to navigate. And you're, you're relying on the very often relying on the roads, and we know there are all sorts of problems with moving things along the roads. So it starts to connect the country, and it means that you can produce. Um, cotton for example up in the northwest and you can transport it down to london where people will want to buy cloth obviously for a fraction of the price so why were there so few canals in the south because there's there's obviously probably not to the same degree but there's still heavy industry there well, I think there's much less heavy industry um, in the south. So we tend to find the canals are located on the coal fields, um, where people are iron producing, um, where you're making heavy, bulky, bulky goods. There is industry in the s- south, um, but I think the, the, the cost benefit of building, an, uh, building a canal is much less. So, for example, grain, you, you know, you're in the south, you might want, grain is fairly heavy, you might want to move grain around, but it's very expensive to build a canal and it's there's not that much of a gain in moving your grain around. So it's really about a cost-benefit, and that, that's tipped much more in favour when you're dealing with really heavy, heavy things like coal and iron. OK. We talked about coal, and you, you've, you've mentioned cloth as well. Can you give a sense of the breadth of what, what commodities would be flowing on this canal right in front of us? <clears throat> well, obviously, so people are building them in order to move coal around. That's the motivation. But then... Before long, people are realising that you can move delicate things on a canal. Um, the potteries, for example, so you can move China around. That's obviously not going to travel awfully well on a very bumpy road and a horse and cart. And um, people start moving on the canals, textiles, and although they're not built in order to move agricultural goods around, potatoes, wheat, grain, all of these things can be moved around. What's not so useful with the canals are things that are perishable. So we wait for the railways. When the railways come, you can start to move things like butter and fish and meat around, and that makes another step change. The canals are too slow to make that kind of change. Mm. That was Nige Tassel in the company of Professor Emma Griffin of the University of East Anglia. You can read more from Nige and Emma in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's magazine, there are articles on the Black Death, Genghis Khan, the Battle of Britain and the Reformation, among other things. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And for this issue, we're trying out a new service whereby you can enjoy audio versions of the articles. These will be available to listen to on the iPad and iPhone versions. And you can also download the articles for free from the website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash July audio for that. And just before we go, I'd like to tell you about a new app that we've recently launched. It's called History Extra Weekly and is your indispensable guide to the week in history, including some of the best content from the History Extra website. It's free to download and is currently available on the iPad and iPhone. Search for History Extra in the App Store to give it a try. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about Anglo-Saxon saints, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. 
Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.